Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Today, a sweet story in honor of Mother's Day weekend. In the summer of 2020, Atlanta's Alyssa Bertrand began posting pictures on Instagram of her kids dressed in her clothing creations. And then Vogue came knocking. Yes, Vogue magazine. City Light senior producer Kim Drobes caught up with the Atlanta mom behind design label Jabella Fleur. And we'll hear that conversation later in the program. The intersection of theater and social justice is central to the new play, Calf. Director Ariel Fristo and actor Marlon Burnley will tell us about Out of Hand Theater's new production being performed in living rooms across the city. First... Zimbabwean-born author Machona Dliwayo once said, Truth is like a seed. No matter how deep you bury it, it will rise. This sentiment is at the heart of the documentary series Seeds of Resilience. The short film series highlights the experiences of black agrarians in Atlanta, WABE and Foodwell Alliance will present the premiere screening of Season 2 at the Fulton County Library on Wednesday, May 18th. And WABE is co-hosting the Soil Festival, which opens tomorrow. Seeds of Resilience filmmaker Tabia Lissendi Parker joins me now via Zoom to talk more about this series. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Likewise to have you. Would you please give us an overview of Seeds of Resilience? Sure. So Seeds of Resilience really came to be because I saw an opportunity to kind of change the way stories were being gathered and told uh, specifically about growers in the metro Atlanta area. 
as a Black storyteller in the South, I really can't help but see most things through the lenses that make up my personal identity. And I just became more curious about how many of those growers look like me. So Seeds of Resilience was an opportunity to put growers together, you know, for an afternoon stroll, sit together, move through the farms and or gardens that they've cultivated and to share their experiences with each other uh, without a script to stick to. And we learn important history along the way with their personal experiences. Tabi, what is your personal connection to gardening and working with the soil? So I've been in Atlanta a bit over 20 years now, and it really wasn't until I had the opportunity to work with organizations like Foodwell Alliance and she's the countless partners that they work with in the community that really give life and purpose to the work they do. So just through that work, I kind of came in as a storyteller. I became aware that there were like over, well over 300 community gardens and farms in the city. And I didn't even know that. And so, um, so I started just through the curiosity of it and that curiosity from a storyteller lens turned into curiosity of, is this something that I can do? And so I really wanted to not be on the outskirts or the fringes of this experience. And I began enrolling in various workshops, various cohorts in the city that teach people how to grow their own food. Habashaw being one of them, Shamba ATL being another. And it was my experience as both a student and a storyteller that really brought this to life. I enjoyed how each of the episodes were told from the agrarian's perspective in conversation with someone else who worked in agriculture. In addition to the father-son setup in the first episode, I wondered, how did you decide who would be featured together in each episode? Yeah, that that was, um, you know, kind of intentional and also pretty organic. You know, in the first season, the first episode, I wanted two young Black women uh, people who were newer in the in the work uh, in the food space in Atlanta to kind of talk together about how they've grown, how they've evolved in this space as Black women. The second episode was about two women who came to Atlanta from uh, different countries, one being uh, Jamaica and the other coming from Cape Verde and talking about their experiences, bringing what they knew from their native countries into this space. Then there was also kind of a, I'll just say an elder and another young spirit coming together to really figure out like what kind of techniques they use. Uh, in the second season, uh, we went a little differently. The first episode was one that was based in family, as you saw. The second episode was a little different because it was about business owners who primarily tap into the Black growing space to help support their businesses. And then uh, lastly, it's two men who 
really started as students, you know, not like me, but similar to me with uh, a lot of the same mentors and teachers along the way who have now risen into positions of leadership in the local agricultural space in Atlanta, now in the position to really develop and design policies that can make this better integrate uh, urban agriculture into our city. And that was particularly powerful because we see how these urban gardens go beyond food to have an impact on the health of communities, on people's personal as well as physical well-being. And just as a vivid demonstration of the importance of equity. A common theme in the series is looking at how these people's labor will flourish into something that benefits the next generation. What are some ways in which they are expanding urban agriculture and teaching future generations about farming and gardening. Right. And I thank you for really noting that a lot of these growers, a lot of Black agrarians certainly are doing this as a small business enterprise. Um, However, you know, they are making very, very vast and sweeping efforts to restore and revitalize our local food system, designing concepts to build self-determined communities, and showing the value of healing a lot of the historical trauma that people of color have experienced through the cultivation of food and of land. Many of these growers have their own personal initiatives throughout the city. You know, I don't want to drop any names for fear of leaving anyone out, but they're incredible organizations, uh, Liberation Gardens, Distribute Collective, Habashaw, the see, Shamba ATL, uh, truly living well. There are just countless, countless organizations who are working to bring folks back to the land, uh, meeting people where they are, because there really is no age cap. There's no ability cap. I feel like gardens, specifically urban growers, are meant to be adaptable. They're change agents who are innovating like I said, adapting and mastering skills to be able to bring healthy food into their communities and also to light, to ignite a desire for folks to find that self-determination. You know, quite literally, I think they're they're changing the landscapes of our cities. Literally, indeed. Would you talk about how these urban farms help areas in the city that may seem like food deserts? Yeah, a lot of the work they do is around community engagement. Black growers, growers in general, are movement builders. And I think what has come to light is that there is a narrowing proximity between where food comes from and where it is consumed. And a lot of Black agrarians in the city of Atlanta, at least, and I'm speaking of Atlanta, obviously, because that's where I am and where this work is being done, are creating opportunities for people to engage directly with the food that they're growing. They're having initiatives, they're having events on their farms, they're popping up at local community farmers markets and things like that. And they're making family-friendly events on farms 
an opportunity to, for people to touch it closer, for people to get to know their local farmers because it is a relationship no different than any public servant. And um, I think it's about narrowing that proximity and allowing people to see that this isn't something that's unattainable. As a matter of fact, it's a part of our cultural DNA to grow food for our communities and for our families. And I think it's bringing people back together. You know, that aspect comes through beautifully in this series. One man says he's standing on land that belonged to his family for 140 years. And another point that made a powerful impression on me was when one of the agrarians said, there's this misperception that people from Africa were brought here with no skills. He said, the ancestors knew how to grow, how to nurture the earth, how to create life from soil. They simply were not allowed the resources. And so this, in many ways, is coming full circle. Absolutely, absolutely. And one of the stories that really shifted my perspective was when I learned how people who were enslaved and being brought here would braid seeds into their hair so that they could have native seeds from their homeland to be able to plant again. Because, I mean, as I've learned in my in my classes and my workshops with the people that I admire and revere, my mentors, seeds hold an incredible amount of DNA and seeds are incredibly adaptable. That's really how the, the title came to be. Seeds are inherently resilient. You know, this, this opportunity to create the series certainly raises awareness, but I really think that voice and visibility are really just the tip of the iceberg. Black oral tradition, to me, is a tool of our preservation, of our cultural preservation. Yes. And here, a preservation of our planet, too. Absolutely. What Absolutely. African practices do some of the urban farmers use in their garden? I mean, there are so many, and you know, I don't want to disappoint any of my teachers, but uh, one of my favorite tactics is to place a seed in your mouth before you plant it in the ground oh. to connect your actual DNA to the DNA of the seed. And that's one of the ones that I carry with me often. You know, you think about innovation and irrigation and, and all these other things, but people grow rice on cliffs and tea and in crazy mountain uh, altitudes. And I think that a lot of those traditions, ways of, of capturing rainwater, digging trenches around garden beds to make sure that there's containment and that we can reduce erosion, things like that, I think are, are really necessary and really cool because they don't take a lot of technology. Innovation has been taking place without technology for a long time. And yeah, it's, it's really kind of a, a creative thing to see the way that people companion plants or, you know, plant on a hill because of the way that the water will drain. But, you know, what I've learned is that farmers are engineers and scientists and geniuses on so many levels because you literally have to sit with the earth. You have to sit with the land. You have to watch the sun. You have to get to know your soil. You have to know what grows well where. 
And I think all of that is a testament to their mastery and being masters who are always students, I think is the key again to, to preserving this not only lifestyle, but this practice of growing our own food. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, and my guest is filmmaker Tabia Lissenby Parker. We've been discussing her documentary series, Seeds of Resilience. Would you tell us about your youth outreach program, the Capture Project? <laughs> oh, sure. So the Capture Project is a um, an outreach program I started years ago. Um, it's had a few start and stops, you know, especially around COVID. However, it's really about getting young people to see things differently, to be change agents with their vision, to find beauty in ordinary things, and to, again, understand the importance of preserving Black oral tradition. So while we can see the beauty uh, sitting at the feet of elders, listening to people who've come before us, uh, people whose shoulders we stand on, just like a seed or just like a microphone, I believe a camera is uh, an important tool, a weapon of choice, so to speak, in creating the experience that you want, or at least raising awareness about policy, about people, about shifts that need to happen in our community. How does the title Seeds of Resilience reflect upon the journey and trials that people of African descent have endured? Hmm. So I think that it has come with the territory of Black experience to be deemed resilient. And it's not always received as an honor. It's not always an honor to be faced with multiple levels of adversity and having to come back each time. You know, that's exhausting. That's tiring. However, we still do it. And that is the purpose and the process of a seed. You plant it in the dark and it's up to everything that's within it for it to come into the light and to grow and to flourish and to then be able to do that again. And so that's how really the, the title came to be. I believe our stories are our blueprints. They show us what was, they show us what is, they show us what could be. And I think that seeds really hold the possibilities of our humanity. Tabia, you just brought to mind Maya Angelou for me. And not only the poetic way you explained the title, but I just heard her say, and still I rise. Right. The phrase, there is no culture without agriculture, is echoed through the episodes. What does this motto mean to you? Gosh, Kashawn Myers is actually who kind of coined that, that phrase. And it's resonated for years. Um, and every conversation I have with almost every grower I have that comes up. Um, there's a sign in the Habeshaw Garden at Dunbar that is painted and says, there's no culture without agriculture. And what that means to me is that food is our ultimate connector. It, it sees no ethnicity, it sees no age, it sees no ability. 
it sees nothing but the opportunity to bring people together. People connect around food and the, the act of growing food is such, sure it's blood, sweat and tears, sure it's you know financial and time and energy investments, but it truly is and has been for me a spiritual and emotional journey. And I think it's those experiences that bring color and life into our culture, whichever one we identify with. Most of us, I think, identify with multiple kinds of culture. And so, yes, I believe that agriculture is really the hub that brings a group of people together. How is this film series connected to the seventh annual Soil Festival? which opens May 7th. Yes, I think the connection, I mean, first and foremost, Truly Living Well is located in the Ashview Heights neighborhood, predominantly Black neighborhood, led by a Black woman. Previous to her, it was led by a Black man. And it has been Foodwell's intention every year, this will be the seventh year, to host this event in that community. And not only have many of the farmers that were interviewed in this series come through either programs at Truly Living Well or worked under the guidance of Rashid Nuri, but it's almost like uh, one of the home bases, so to speak, for the Black agrarian, the Black food culture in Atlanta. Uh, Everybody knows Truly Living Well. Everyone has pulled a weed or planted a seed or um, done something through that organization. Um, And it's been around for a while now. And I think there's a lot of dedication to supporting that farm, keeping it going, and to continuing to bring the um, immediate community there and recognizing it as a resource. And, you know, my hope for this documentary is that it sparks a light. It sparks a desire for someone to walk down the street to whatever their closest community garden is or to get to know their local farmer. Um, And I think the point of all of these things is to bring people closer to the people that feed their community and, you know, potentially give someone the enthusiasm or the motivation to start their own. Soil Fest in particular is about something that I didn't even know, you know, until I began this work, the importance of healthy soil. You think you just put a seed in there and and let the rain come and let the sun shine and everything happens, but our soil is connected to so many things and, and the output, the quality of our food is based on our soil. And so um, it's important to become educated around that, to be able to see the evolution of soil, to recognize that, you know, a lot of the food that we eat or just, you know, the foods that food that we discard can be put back into the soil to, to better attain better quality food. Tapia Listen B. Parker, filmmaker and creator of Seeds of Resilience, WABE and Foodwell Alliance will present the premiere screening of season two at the Fulton County Library on Wednesday evening, May 18th. I look forward to seeing you there. And the Soil Festival is tomorrow, May 7th, beginning at 11 a.m., More information about the film event and Soil Festival 
is on our website, wabe.org. In a moment, the local independent fashion designer who received a surprise call from Vogue magazine, amplifying Atlanta. This is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. If you are an independent clothing designer, it's pretty unusual for a high fashion magazine to reach out to you unexpectedly. And yet, that is exactly what happened to Atlanta's Alyssa Bertrand and her brand, Jabella Fleur. In the summer of 2020, Bertrand began posting pictures on Instagram of her kids dressed in her clothing creations, and then Vogue came knocking. Yes, Vogue magazine. Last August, City Light senior producer Kim Drobes caught up with the Atlanta mom behind Jabella Fleur. And here, Bertrand talks about when she started sewing. I've been sewing actually for a little over 20 years. And it was just something that kind of started off as like I had received these little cross stitch kits from an aunt and I always hated it. And it just kind of, at a certain point, I don't know, it was this breaking point where I was in school and it was either for a home at cooking or sewing. And I was like, I am not cooking. So <laughs> it just kind of took it from there to where I was like, well, let's do sewing. And ever since. <laughs> Good for you. So tell me uh, the little cross stitch gifts that you were given. Why were they an affront? What were you hoping for instead? My aunt, she was a seamstress. She had a little shop. So it was like, I don't know if she was trying to get me into it, Mm -hmm. but I'd get these kits and, you know, my brothers and stuff would get blockbuster cards, you know, when blockbuster was around or just, you know, movie tickets and things. And I'm like a cross stitch kit. (laughs) Really? You know, it's like, (laughs) and I never showed any interest at that point of wanting to do stuff like that. So it was just kind of awkward. Of course you would want the movie card at that age. That just makes sense. So you ended up taking a home ec sewing class and did it stick with you after high school? It did off and on. Like I would still dabble in between and just always want to be like within fabrics and going to the fabric stores and 
just kind of always in and out of it. And then I had children. So it was like, oh, I'll make a blanket or I'll attempt to try and do something whenever I could until, you know, kind of recently. And you mentioned buying fabrics. At some point, you came to the realization that fabric is really expensive. It was. It it almost came to a point where it was just like, this is not even feasible. By the time I buy however much yardage times the amount times the child, then the pattern and the time, it was just like, what? This is, this is not working out. So it was just kind of that point too, where I go into these fabric stores and I never really found stuff that was my true style or my aesthetic or what I loved. And I was always thrifting and I'm like, wait a minute, here we have all these clothes, you know, $2, $3 sheets, materials. And I'm like, why don't I just start using this? It just kind of clicked, which is so funny because it was like, it took me that long for (laughs) something to click that I've always been doing. What are some of your favorite thrift stores in Atlanta? I dabble in between Park Avenue Thrift, Value Village, and Southern Thrift. And yeah, the Mm -hmm. things there are super cheap. And when you talk about getting fabrics from sheets or curtains, you're ending up with a lot of yardage. It's a lot. I mean, and I try to look for things like skirts. Obviously, anything that's bigger than what my children are will obviously work like blouses and things. But yes, shirts, skirts, sheets. And a lot of times these thrift stores have fabric that, you know, just people have gotten rid of and it's an easy way to, you know, reuse what's already there. Right. For those who are unfamiliar with your work, will you share a little bit about what your aesthetic is like and what you go for as a designer? Anything that draws any reminiscence to the past, any decade I love. It's all vintage nostalgia through the patterns, the colors, the palette, the storytelling with what I'm trying to evoke with what it is that I create. And just kind of setting that tone and story with a mood of clothing that was, you know, reminiscent. And honestly, it's all coming back. So a lot of these brands are turning around the same style from the 80s and the 90s and the early 2000s. And even back to the 70s, a lot of stuff is coming back. So my aesthetic and design pulls a lot from that as well. So you're definitely pulling from vintage history, but the way that you're putting stuff together is incredibly unique. You're not afraid of patterns or color. That is probably an understatement. (laughs) I am absolutely in love with patterns and colors and textures and the silhouette once it's all put together. And if anything, people would gather is I absolutely love floral prints. Mm. There's no going around it. So I just love that layered look of putting something together to where you're taking this dress or whatever piece of garment and you're just kind of enhancing it to, you know, who you are in telling your story through that. And for you, since you originally started making your clothes for your own children, they're still a big part of your process, right? At this point, it's more so I know them and I know Hmm. who they are. I'll make a dress for one and know the other one can't stand them or I'll make (laughs) pants for another and one wants a skirt. At this point, I know what they like. I'll ask them, you know, hey, would you wear this print or do you like this one? And they'll be like, oh, I love that one. Or maybe this one instead, if it's something really off. But 
for the most part, I do all of that. Right on. Well, let's explain a little more about how you took off. So you were styling your clothes for your kids. You were posting very beautiful pictures on Instagram, quite artistic. And at that point, um, is it accurate to say that Vogue magazine went actively searching for young creatives? It just so happened that they were doing a piece on just, you know, new fashion from the South. And I apparently popped up and they found me, which was an amazing opportunity for me to be able to have. Let's share with people where the name of your label came from and tell people a little bit about your kids. So the brand is Jabella Fleur, which is J-A-B-E-L-L-A. The J-A in the beginning is for my two twin, their twins, Jada and Jayla. The A-B in the center is my name, Alisa Bertrand. And the Ella at the end is for my youngest daughter, who's Ella. And then Fleur, which is flower, because as I mentioned, I'm absolutely in love with them. <laughs> so it just kind of meshed all together, Jabella Fleur. It's a beautiful tribute to them. And you came up with a very unique name. How did they feel when they first became unexpected models? You know, I think initially it was like, they didn't really realize it's like, oh, we're just getting dressed. And then it kind of was like, well, hey, I just dressed you. Let's take a cool picture. So we started taking some pictures and they were just like, oh, this is cool. And it almost came to a point there. We're like, well, are we going to do one tomorrow? And I was like, well, I can't sell that fast. So, (laughs) you know, I was like, okay, so you guys like it. And it's really stuck with them because there's points where I haven't sewn in a bit just because of everything that's going on in life right now and just the time and ability. And they're like, Hey mom, are we going to go take pictures today? And it's like, Oh, (laughs) you got little motivators. Yeah, for sure. It's not forced. I mean, they love it just as much or probably even on days more than I do. That's fantastic. People have commented on your Instagram. Why aren't your kids smiling more? They need to smile. And I loved your response to that. Would you mind sharing your thought behind that with people? Yeah. You know, it was just, I started getting comments on like, why aren't they smiling or they look miserable, but I always encourage them to, you don't have to smile. We don't all walk around with smiles all day. And I can be the happiest go lucky person, but that doesn't mean that I have to show you to prove it to you. You know, you prove it to yourself. And it was just kind of taking that spin of like, okay, you're forcing them to do this or, and let's be honest, if anybody has children, you can't really force much. And I mean, (laughs) I I mean, and and especially when you're taking pictures, if a kid or child does not want to be in an image, they will surely show you, you know? So it's like, I encourage them to express how they feel, however they want. If you don't want to smile, don't smile. If you want to smile, smile. You know, a lot of that was coming from a lot of women and white women, honestly, who were like, why don't you make them smile? Or why aren't they smiling? And to me, social media is like, if you are not resonating with what you see, why are you following? Like you can remove yourself. If I don't believe in something or I don't feel like what you're doing aligns to what I'm doing or what I want to share, teach and know, I'm not going to follow you. And I won't waste my time 
commenting either. Why is the assumption that you're doing it wrong and not just that I might not be into it? Yeah, you know, another point to that is why do I have to smile to make you feel good? You know, and that's kind of what I was pushing as well. Why do I have to prove something to you? I'm not going to force them to smile. And if they don't want to, you don't have to. Well, I'm very impressed with your ability to be a champion for your kids, just being who they are. However, who they are is really cool. And they are just, they're stunning. They have so much poise and just such an intense gaze. Do any of them have a desire to continue modeling later in life? You know, it's funny because, you know, they change every moment. At this point, it's honestly not really an ambition. It's just kind of fun. Like it's a natural thing for them, but they haven't mentioned it as being something that they'd want to do long-term, which also goes to the fact, you know, from the previous question is I'm really trying to show them who I never was able to be. I'm trying to show them and teach them you know, you can have the confidence, you can walk somewhere, you can sit in a room, you can hold your shoulders up, but not have to impress the next person over or make them feel some sort of way because of your presence. Like you are who you are and you're strong that way. You're confident that way, carry yourself that way. And it's a constant reminder to them every day so when they are out there in the world on their own, I at least know, okay, if my child is in school, I know that nobody's going to be able to walk over them. Or, you know, if they want to say something, they're going to have the ability to say it and not feel bad for what they believe in or things of that sort. So it kind of like all encompasses everything that they do so that when you do see them in a picture and you see their shoulders high and you see their head up, that doesn't mean they have to smile for you. They're smiling for themselves whatever way they want to show that. Very well said. So Mm -hmm. when I look at your clothes, if I'm, if I'm getting past the beauty of your kids and I'm just looking at the clothes, they really evoke joy. They are, they are joyful garments. Can you speak a little to that? They are. They're not going to be over-sexualized clothing. They are not skin tight. They are still fun. You can run around in them. You can be outside. You can go wherever you want to go and still have that fun look to those clothing, but still at least like this look of like you took time to get ready. And as I say, like the art of dress is almost kind of lost now, especially with children. It brings back the fun, whimsical nostalgia of like, oh, wow, children's clothes in the past used to be like these amazing pieces. Where are they? Like what happened to them? Alyssa Bertrand of Jabella Fleurk. You can learn more about the designer and her upcycled clothing creations on our website, wabe.org. Coming up, Out of Hand Theater takes their newest production to living rooms across the city. Amplifying Atlanta, This is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. There are two million people incarcerated in the United States, and 
the recidivism rate is more than 50% within three years of their release. Two out of three former prisoners are rearrested. Kath, a play by Atlanta native Leviticus Jelks, examines a former prisoner's journey to redemption. The show was commissioned by Out of Hand Theater and will be performed through May 21st in living rooms across Atlanta. Artistic Director Ariel Fristo and Associate Artistic Director of Out of Hand Theater, actor Marlon Burnley, join me now to talk more about CAF. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having us, Lois. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Ariel, can you please give us a synopsis of CAF? Yeah, so Kath is 24 hours in the life of a man who has just spent 10 years in prison after going into prison very young, probably as a teenager. And this is the first 24 hours after he's released. He has several things he's trying to accomplish. He needs a place to stay. He needs a job. He wants to reconnect with his family But most importantly, his goal is to meet the son who was born shortly after he went into prison, who he has never met and is now turning 10. Mm. Marlon, in this production, you portray seven different characters. Yes. What can you tell us about each of them? That they're all very unique in their own way. And... It's awesome to get a glimpse into the lives of these people who have been affected by this singular event and seeing how they're still dealing with it. It's really interesting. They're all driven. They all believe in what they believe, uh, honestly. And it's a joy to go in and out of them and get these different perspectives. Because, you know, as people on the outside, we can see someone's situation and make those snap judgments. So it's been interesting for me to live in the world of these seven other people and seeing how they're dealing with it. I read some of the characters are white or of a different gender than how you identify. Yes. I'm curious about what it's like to play such a range of characters. How did you prepare for each of the roles? Yeah, well, it was truly an honor to step into each and every role, especially the ones that are complete opposite of me. Like, I really identify with Arna, who is Eli's mother, and Renell, who is Eli's girlfriend. I connect to these women because I, I see them in my own life. I see a lot of my mom in Arna, my wife, my sisters, and so it was really important for me to honor those experiences and those women. Fortunately, and also unfortunately, in my own personal life, I don't live too far from several of these characters that I portray. I've, I've seen people experience these things. So it was really easy to draw from that. The quote on the show's poster, the quote for the publicity is, How would you like to be identified for your entire life by the one worst thing you've ever done? 
working on this play, how did each of you reflect on this question? Well, for me, I could have easily been in Eli's situation. I grew up in a neighborhood that I imagine is similar to the one that he grew up in. I've come into contact with some of the same characters that he's come in contact with. And I've also, like other people, like I've made bad choices. But the difference is I, I was able to notice those bad choices and then make opposite choices, you know? So it would, it would drive me crazy if someone was like, hey, Marlon, remember that thing you did when you were 18? That was terrible. And that's how we're going to label you. So for, for, for me, it was really just like, I know this is possible. Like, I know there are lots of people who are being judged, like people in my life that are having that experience and they absolutely hate it. So I, I, I honestly can't imagine being in that. Hmm. Ariel? I've been thinking a lot about that question today because I just drove back from a Leadership Atlanta women's retreat where I had the great privilege of spending a couple of days with this wonderful group of very successful, powerful Atlanta women leaders. And we talked a lot about race and class this weekend. And so I was thinking all the more about how my kid and the children of most of the women in that room and probably the children of most of the people listening, if they made a mistake, even if they broke the law, they have a fairly good chance of getting a, a second chance of not spending 10 years in prison for that. Whereas in the world that this character grew up in, it's a, it's a really rough world and there are very few second chances. You know, you make one mistake, you slip up once and there's a good chance you are going to prison. And, you know, in the country that we live in, that is so much more likely to happen to you if you're a person of color or if you are a person who's living in poverty. Mm. The production is being presented in partnership with the Georgia Justice Project. Obviously, you two are on the theatrical side. Can you still give us an overview of what the Georgia Justice Project does? Absolutely. I get the pleasure of introducing them at some of the performances. So their mission is to demonstrate a better way to support and represent, legally represent people who are involved in the criminal justice system and to help reduce the barriers to reentry when you come out of prison. And they are just an incredible partner to have on this project. They come, and this is out of hand's model for these shows. We have a one act play, but then every night we also have a cocktail party and we have a conversation with someone from Georgia Justice Project about the issue about incarceration and recidivism and reentry and about their work. So what kind of conversations will be discussed? And I should ask, who will lead them? So a different out-of-hand staff person leads the conversation every night, but most of the talking is done by our Georgia Justice Project partners and Marlon, um, who's also a, a, a wonderful participant in these. So we ask them to answer questions about what are the, the social and legal barriers to re-entry when somebody has been in prison, 
what do the statistics look like in Georgia versus the rest of the country in the world in terms of who, how many people are incarcerated and what happens to them afterwards, and then about what they're doing to help. Out of hand theater stage is in the living rooms and homes of various people. How did the theater pivot during the pandemic? Oh my goodness, I'm so happy you asked that, Lois. One of the many wonderful things that happened to us is that we had the honor of hiring Marlon as our Associate Artistic Director, but we had a pretty unusual COVID experience compared to a lot of theater companies in this country. We tripled our budget size and had to triple our staff size to keep up with all of the work that we were being asked to do during the pandemic. It's very unusual, but we had developed a model where we do a lot of short one-person plays in partnership with social justice organization and primarily focused around racial justice and economic justice. And it just so happened that that format works really well on Zoom compared to a lot of other theater formats and that it was a huge topic of conversation, racial justice in, in 2020 and, and moving forward. And so we just had people calling us and contacting us right and left, commissioning us and hiring us to do the work we were already doing. And it's been an amazing ride. Wow. Congratulations. Thank you. Why does Otter's Hand continue to opt for an intimate space? such as a living room or a patio, rather than in a formal theater. We want the theater to be for everyone, and we want to use the tools of theater to work for social justice more than we want to just purely entertain people. And a lot of people don't feel like theater is for them. Walking into a, a theater building it might not seem like it was made for them. It might not seem inviting. It might seem stuffy or old fashioned. And so we want to create experiences that feel really welcoming and intimate and bring theater to people and in service to organizations that we love and that are doing great work in the community and reduce as many barriers as we can to people enjoying theater. Would you talk about the title of this play? Yeah, there's a really powerful line. Um, well, the, the whole piece is powerful. Shout out to Levy on that. But there's, there's a line where Rennell refers to the way slave women were treated. And the line goes, they were bred and seeded like cows. The men were called bulls and the boys were calves. And so it's this this idea that like they're they're brought into this world as products as livestock as animals and uh treated as such and and yeah it's it's really that that simple of just seeing someone as like a human and then seeing someone as an animal imprisonment is a vicious cycle and the current system we have doesn't often provide a path to recovery how can plays such as CAF help people re-examine our prison system? I think it gives people like a firsthand look into seeing what it what it's like. And I also 
like the idea that we meet people where they are. We don't ask them to step outside of themselves. We don't ask them to apologize for anything. We just ask them to sit and listen to a story and earnestly consider what is being presented in front of them. I loved last weekend, we were at a home and a guest was brought who had spent several years in the system. And if he had never said that, you would never even know. And so like we have these snap judgments of what people are like when they get out of prison or who they are. But it was really just a beautiful moment of just seeing a person as a person. And I think that's really the point of the work that we do, meeting people where they are and giving them a chance to change their mind. Out-of-hand theater associate artistic director and actor Marlon Burnley and artistic director Ariel Fristo. Out-of-hand won the New York Times Best Theater Award of 2020 and the Governor's Award for the Arts and Humanities in 2021. Their new production, CAF, will be performed in living rooms across Atlanta May 8th through May 21st. More information will be on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9, Monday at 11 a.m., We'll hear about a local photo tour that includes a community cleanup. Plus, artist and activist Charmaine Minifield tells us about her new exhibition, Indigo Prayers, a creation story. And jazz artist Joe Alterman stops by with a preview of the upcoming Sounds Like ATL at City Winery. City Light's senior producer is Kim Droves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary, but when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate, and thanks.